This video was made possible thanks to your support on Patreon. Subscribe on Patreon for early access to videos and additional content. Many hugely important events occurred in Australia throughout the 1970s. The Australian Labour Party came into power, the White Australia Policy, which stops non-Caucasians immigrating to the country, was finally dismantled, and the economic boom, which had made the country so prosperous for many long years, came to an end. And hidden in the shadows beneath these huge changes, several mysterious and terrifying crimes occurred, many of which are still unsolved to this day. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be exploring two of Australia's most notorious cold cases from the 1970s. Eloise Warledge. Eloise Anne Warledge was the eldest of three children, born to Lindsay and Patsy Warledge. She was born on October 8th, 1967, and was just eight years old when she vanished from the family home on Scott Street in Beaumaris, Victoria, 1976. Her case is one of the most puzzling in Australia's history, and even after almost five decades, it remains unsolved. When police arrived at the Warledge family home on January 12th, 1976, they immediately suspected that something was amiss. Eloise's four-year-old brother, Blake, had noticed his older sister missing earlier that morning at around 7.30 a.m. And after briefly searching the property, Patsy and Lindsay called the authorities. There were no signs of a struggle inside the house or in the bedroom belonging to the eight-year-old but a small hole had been cut into the fly screen of her window, which was open as far as it could go, leaving a gap of 38 centimeters. A piece of bark from the tree outside the window was also found on the floor of Eloise's room. However, forensic examination of the cut in the screen showed that it had been done from the inside. The hole was also believed to have been too small to be used by the abductor, and the police thought it would have been difficult for the perpetrator to leave via the window while taking Eloise with them. Authorities also determined that the scene had been staged and thought it was much more likely that Eloise and whoever had taken her had exited via the unlocked front door. Upon speaking further with Blake, the four-year-old told authorities that he heard robbers who had taken his sister, but that he was too scared to say anything at the time in case they took him too. Blake added that he'd heard crackling noises when the intruders moved around, suggesting to authorities that they'd been inside Eloise's room as she had a seagrass floor. Police theorized that the little girl had been lured from her bed by someone she knew and trusted. Her parents described Eloise as a shy and timid child who would not willingly go with strangers. However, authorities did not rule out the possibility that she was abducted by a prowler known to be in the area at the time. On the last night that Eloise was seen by her family, her father, Lindsay, had gone to bed around one and a half hours after her. He had been the last one awake as her mother, Patsy, had gone to bed an hour earlier. 
The front door had been left unlocked because Lindsay was unaware that his wife had forgotten to close it. When the children went to sleep at night, a hallway lamp was left on for them. The last parent to go to bed always turned it off. However, on this occasion, Lindsay had forgotten to do so. But curiously, when Patsy awoke at around 4.45 AM to use the toilet, she noticed that the light was off. This led investigators to theorize that by this time, Eloise was already gone. Although there was little physical evidence available inside the family home, authorities were relieved to find an abundance of witnesses around the neighborhood. One neighbor saw a dark green car speeding down Scott Street at two o'clock in the morning, while another reported seeing a green Holden station wagon, which she did not recognize, parked near the Warledge's house. Around this same time, neighbors heard a child scream and a car door slam. One man also reported that his tool shed had been broken into that same night. Then around midnight, another neighbor named Anne Same saw a young man walking down the fence line of the family home. She noted that the unidentified man made her feel so uneasy that she crossed the road to avoid him. Around this same time, a woman named Molly Saltz, who lived a little further down the street, saw a young man jump the fence to the Wallage property after running in front of her car and across the street. Investigators also discovered that a young man had been canvassing the area over the previous few days, claiming that he was doing a survey on children's education. This man has never been identified, and it is unknown if he was the same man seen the night Eloise vanished. Without any further leads as to the identity of the man or men seen in the area around the time Eloise was last seen, authorities turned to Patsy and Lindsay with their suspicions. Both parents were having affairs and living separate lives at the time of their daughter's disappearance. They had been together for over 10 years, but had recently become distant and both parties sought to dissolve the marriage. The day that Eloise was taken, Lindsay was due to move out of the family home and into his own apartment. Authorities wondered if perhaps he'd done this to stall the moving date and allow him to spend more time in the family home. But ultimately, neither parent was ever linked conclusively to the disappearance. According to a senior constable who was speaking to a news outlet in 2002, Patsy told police at the time that she felt her husband was involved in the disappearance as a means of prolonging the inevitable and as a way of spiting her. However, other investigators who worked the case believed Lindsay only really became a suspect because there was nobody else and no other leads. In 1976, the father of three had offered to take a polygraph test, but he was not taken up on this offer. He was later asked to take one in 2002, but the results were inconclusive. As we always say, it is worth bearing in mind that polygraph tests are never reliable and are rarely admissible as evidence in court. At the time the crime occurred, an extensive search was carried out involving over 250 people. The dog squad, search and rescue, and the mounted branch were just some of the police units involved in the three week long search, but no trace of Eloise was ever discovered. Her body, if she has sadly passed away, has never been found either. A reward of $10,000, the modern day equivalent of nearly $70,000 was offered too, but none of the leads ever brought in by this incentive ever propelled the investigation forward. 
Other suspects in 1976 included Patsy's sister and several of her friends, although it's unclear why. When the case was reopened in 2001, they were all dismissed as suspects. Their links to the case were entirely baseless. One month after Eloise vanished, a woman named Catherine Marling came forward and told the police that she'd seen a green 1966 model Holden in the street a week before the incident. Authorities believed that the vehicle was the same one which was stolen from Carlton in December of 1975, but the car was never found and the lead quickly died out. Over 100 family members and extended family members were looked into by police, alongside over 250 colleagues, friends, students, and acquaintances too, but still the investigation stalled. In 2001, the police examined sex offenders who were in the area in 1976, including several teachers at Eloise's primary school, but once again, their efforts were in vain. Once more, the case stalled and grew cold. Although police concluded the scene had been staged and that more than one person was likely responsible for the crime, they could not pin down any names or real evidence which could tie someone to the scene. Both Patsy and Lindsay remarried following their divorce. While they both had theories about what might have taken place on the night of January 12th, 1971, they were both skeptical that the case would ever be solved. Lindsay passed away in February of 2017 never knowing what became of his daughter. Patsy spends much of her time looking after her grandchildren. The couple's other daughter, Anna, had three children. However, tragedy hit the family again in 1997, when their only son, Blake, died after being struck by a car while crossing the road one rainy night. The current status of Eloise's case is unknown, and due to a lack of leads and updates, it seems unlikely that it is active at this moment in time. The Easy Street Murders Dubbed Victoria's most brutal crime, the Easy Street Murders heavily scarred the local residents of Collingwood, Victoria, when they occurred one seemingly normal day in 1977. On January 11th, a puppy was found wandering the streets. This was not an immediate cause for alarm, until it was recognized as being the new pup belonging to the two Sues, two best friends who resided in a three bedroom home on Easy Street. Neighbors who recognized the hungry dog knocked on the door of the home, but received no answer. So they left a note on the door and took the puppy with them, caring for it until it could be reunited with its owners. However, nobody ever came to collect it. Over the next few days, neighbors became increasingly concerned. They could hear a baby crying inside the home, but waited until the 13th before deciding to investigate. They entered through the back door and found a 16-month-old Gregory Armstrong crying in his cot. He was distressed and dehydrated, but otherwise, thankfully, unharmed. However, when the neighbors peered down the hallway, they were met with a gruesome and bloody sight. The body of a woman was lying near the front door of the home. Terrified, the neighbors fled with baby Gregory before calling the police. There were two victims of the Easy Street murders, 
28-year-old single mother Suzanne Armstrong and 27-year-old Susan Barlett, who was an arts and crafts school teacher at Collingwood Education Centre. The pair were old high school friends who'd both moved to Melbourne and had begun to rent the three-bed property in October of 1976. Investigators believe that the women had been attacked several days earlier, on January 10th, which was the last time anyone had seen or heard from them. That night, Susan Barlett's brother and his girlfriend had visited for dinner and left around 9pm. Suzanne Armstrong's boyfriend, Barry Woodard, had called to the house on the 11th, but got no answer, although he continued to try and reach the 28-year-old by calling throughout the day. On the 12th, he still received no answer, and so decided to check in on his girlfriend by heading over to her house. According to Barry, he entered via the unlocked back door and left Suzanne a note. He attempted to call out to her, but heard nothing and so left again. His story was backed up by his brother, who'd accompanied him to the home. The deaths of both Suzanne and Susan had been nothing but violent. Suzanne had been stabbed 29 times and was found on her bed. She had been sexually assaulted after death and semen was found at the scene. Susan had been stabbed 55 times and was found in the hallway near the front door, next to Suzanne's bedroom. Authorities suspected that Suzanne Armstrong had been the intended victim and that Susan was collateral damage and had been slain when attempting to help her friend fend off her attacker. While there were no signs of forced entry, it was reportedly very common for the two Sues to leave their doors unlocked. Investigators also found one other possible point of entry when they discovered a footprint on the front windowsill. It wasn't the only evidence left behind, however. Authorities also noted that the perpetrator had cleaned up in the bathroom after the slayings, and a blood-stained towel was found on the sofa in the living room. According to some reports, a bloodied face cloth and shawl were later found a few blocks away. Soon, investigators had established a list of 130 persons of interest, including laborers who were working on the house behind the two women. Two decades later, in 1999, the DNA found at the crime scene was tested against eight prime suspects, but none of these men were a match. In fact, despite the long list of potential suspects, the case swiftly grew cold. Although the brutal and violent slayings of the two women made for a high-profile case, only 16 detectives were assigned to it. Police noted that the savage nature of the crimes would have required not only mammoth strength, but also blind rage, which was possibly drug-fueled. They believed that the culprit did not stop committing crimes after the deaths of Suzanne and Susan. 16-month-old Gregory's father was quickly ruled out as being a suspect in the investigation, since he was a Greek fisherman who had never set foot in Australia. Suzanne's boyfriend, Barry Woodard, was also ruled out via DNA. According to one article, the large knife used to attack the two women was recovered near Victoria Park Railway Station. But according to another article from Independent Australia, this knife was later ruled out as being the murder weapon. After publishing an article on the case, an Australian journalist named Tess Lawrence was contacted by a man who was annoyed she'd neglected to mention many other small details about the crime scene, including what record was on the record player. 
the unidentified man also mocked her observation skills. The caller claimed he was based at the Victoria Barracks and worked in signals, but refused to give his name. He then said he'd call Tess back before hanging up abruptly. Although the journalist gave this information to the police, nothing further appears to have come from this bizarre and creepy incident. One theory which seemed strong at the beginning of the investigation was that a journalist named John Grant was somehow involved in the case. In 1975, a young woman from Stockton, California named Julie Garcia Soleil was working as a librarian in North Melbourne, Victoria. She vanished from her apartment on July 1st that year. John Grant was a friend of hers and was heavily suspected of being involved with her disappearance. Coincidentally, he'd also been staying next door to the two Sues on the night they were slain. John Grant had been acquainted with two men who were part of the criminal underworld. John Joseph Power, a violent career criminal, and a boxer named Reese Tommy Collins. These men also became associates of Julie. On the day of her vanishing, both Collins and Power were at Julie's flat. The men later told police that the young woman had exited the room to make a phone call and never returned. But according to Julie's sister, who visited the apartment the following day, a black cape and a knife were missing from the apartment, along with $175. She also found that many of her belongings, including her underwear, were scattered around the home. John Grant's potential connection to Julie's case was never proven, and his connection to Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Barlett was ruled out in 2010 when DNA cleared him. However, he remains a suspect in Julie's vanishing. Her case continues to go unsolved. Hopes in the two Suze's case was raised once again in 2014, when a woman came forward naming an 82-year-old man as being involved with the crime back in 1977. According to a brief news clip, the man was being visited by police so they could collect his DNA, but nothing more came of this lead. It is likely that this 82-year-old unknown male was ruled out as a suspect. In 2011, the case was reopened, and in 2017, a $1 million reward was offered for anyone who could lead the authorities to the perpetrator. However, despite this monumental incentive, investigators haven't yet managed to solve the case. Gregory Armstrong was raised by Suzanne's younger sister, Gail, who continues to appeal for answers and attempts to keep her sister's case in the spotlight as much as possible. The home on Easy Street remained vacant for six years following the crime, but has since exchanged hands several times. If you have any information about the vanishing of Eloise Wallage or the slayings of Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Barlett, you can call Crime Stoppers Australia on 1-800-333-000. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. You can also support us on Patreon, to access videos early and behind the scenes footage, along with a whole host of other benefits. Simply follow the link to our Patreon in the description below. Thank you for watching, stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.